0: All right, time to dive into God's Word. What a special time, not only the day of the week, I hope for you. Say, have you ever thought to yourself, or maybe you've heard somebody else say, boy, I wish I'd have been born at a different time, maybe a different decade, maybe a different century or era. Um, you know, there is a way for us to be born Anew. Now, I know that sounds pretty science fiction-ish um, as you hear about it, and that's not the direction we're going to be going, but we are going to be talking today about what it means to be born again. We're going to do that as we continue on in our series on the Gospel of John. We're in John the third chapter this week, so if you've got your Bibles or your Bible app... Go ahead and grab that, turn open to John. We'll be looking at that in just a moment. And as you're doing that, uh, just as sort of a recap for last week as we looked at John 2, you may recall that we uh, dug in a little deeper into that very first miracle that Jesus performed. As a part of that miracle, there were two sort of takeaways that we we left with. One of those was that reality that Jesus, that God, um, always emphasizes the inward person over the outward appearance. We get those things mixed up in our lives too often, but but God emphasizes the inward. And then the second thing was uh, that as we look at the big picture, as we look at things from God's perspective or or from eternity, uh, we see and saw and know that God has saved the best for last. Hope those will continue to remain with you. But this week, we're going to be looking a little bit different uh, direction as we move into that third chapter of the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking today at the, the uh, first 18 verses, uh, so John 1 through 18. Again, I'm going to give you a second to get turned over to that. And as you're doing that, just one more reminder of that theme that runs throughout all of these, and that is the purpose that John wrote this book as God prompted him, uh, we read about it from the the very first week and have been revisiting that, John 20, 31, that says this, these are written that you, that I, may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing that we may have life in his name. That's the whole purpose of this, is that we might have life eternal with God, so it's going to allow that to stay in the back of your mind as we move forward. Okay, if you've got your uh, Bibles, uh, turn open to that third chapter, I don't have the words to put on the screen, Um, and so uh, grab your Bibles, you can have to do that, or listen very carefully, I'm sure Tom will have a nice graphic to put up in its place, but John 3, beginning with verse 1, we read this, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs that you're doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born again when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. As we look to our text for uh, today, we see that what we're uh, kind of peeking into is is a conversation between Jesus and an individual named Nicodemus. Uh, Now, uh, Nicodemus is interestingly only referenced uh, here in the Gospel of John, Um, at least in this context. The story is not found in any of the other Gospels. And we know a little bit about Nicodemus, but not a lot based on what we've just read. For example, we know that Nicodemus has a, has a Greek name even though he's a Jewish individual. Uh, the name Nicodemus, Nico, is, is a transliteration for Nike, a very popular name in these parts here in Oregon. Nike meaning victory, uh, Demos meaning the people, and so the name means victory for the people. We know that Nicodemus is a Pharisee, um, part of a religious sect that, that sort of prided themselves on being separated from the world and the temptations and, and things of the world. They, they weren't isolationists, and they would still interact with culture, but, uh, but they really did try to, to kind of... Uh, uh, pull themselves apart from the rest of the world. In fact, there was even a, a group of, of these Pharisees, a subgroup, that were known as Bleeding Pharisees. And bleeding Pharisees were individuals who, in an attempt to, to really uh, toe the line and not uh, face any temptation or, or give in to that, when they would encounter a situation where there might be temptation there before them. So they walk into a setting where there's a, a, a beautiful woman or they, they see the, the latest model of the, the Ramseys. 3000 all chrome chariot or there's a banquet table laid out and they don't want to give in to gluttony. To avoid those things what they would do is they would close their eyes. Now they had places to go, so they'd still have to continue to walk. And as you can imagine, if you're walking places and your eyes are closed, you're going to run into things. And so they'd bang up their head or skin their knee or cut their arm. And so they'd end up looking like they had just been uh, pummeled by uh, the crowd, uh, bleeding Pharisees. And they saw this really as a kind of a badge of honor type of thing. Uh, Nicodemus uh, wasn't one of those as far as we know, but he was a Pharisee. He did see himself as, as sort of that removed... Group. We know also that as a Pharisee, he wasn't just one of the, the larger crowd, he was part of a select group, a group that participated in what was called the Sanhedrin. That was a, a special body uh, there among the Jews that was made up of Sadducees, of Pharisees, 72, um, and then the additional uh, member of the chief priest. And as a, a member of um, the, the Pharisees, um, Nicodemus was a part of a very select group that, that would deal with, with issues that weren't just religious in nature. They really had an impact on both the, the political and social life uh, of all of the Jews there in that area. We know that Nicodemus uh, was apparently uh, regarded in very high esteem as one of great knowledge and learning. Uh, We're aware of that because we read in John 3.10, You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, or um, other translations say you are the teacher of Israel, indicating that he had a unique, distinct, special role in, in the teaching of things. But as a part of one who was unusually wise, Nicodemus was also smart enough to recognize he didn't know everything. And so what we see is that uh, Jesus and Nicodemus have this encounter. In fact, the scripture tells us that uh, Nicodemus went to see Jesus at night. It's the first instance that we know of of that uh, that saying, Nick at night. You kind of wonder where that came from. Well, now you you know where that had its origins. And so Nicodemus meets with Jesus at night. And why not? Why night? Um, Well, because the Sanhedrin uh, was not very favorable in their opinion of Jesus. And if they had found out that Nicodemus was meeting with Jesus, um, this would not have been looked upon in, in particularly good light. And again, it would have impacted not just his, his religious standing, but social and political and cultural as well. And so they have this, this encounter, they have this first meeting, and as they do that, we see that Nicodemus moves into a a conversation that really takes him into, into four stages of what will ultimately lead him to a place where he is born again. We read about that in just a moment, where there's spiritual rebirth that takes place in his life. And he begins this process with a step that I think is still fairly prevalent today. In fact, I think all of these stages are still very much lived out among people today. The first one of those things is that there was an element of caution in his life. As he's approaching Jesus, there's a little bit of hesitancy, there's a little bit of resistance. Um, again, he goes at night because he doesn't want to, to risk his reputation. And, and it's not all that dissimilar to, to how people approach Jesus yet today. Uh, they're a little hesitant. They don't want to be classified as a Jesus freak or a, or a religious fanatic. And, and so they, they, they know there's something more to him, but they're, uh, they're kind of slow when, as, as they move forward in that. In the second chapter of John 3, we read these words. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God was not with him. Now as Nicodemus uh, addresses him, he addresses him with a a title of of respect, Rabbi, even though we don't know of any formal teaching that Jesus had, he still honors him by giving him that uh, title. And as we, uh, again, think about how that, that plays out, we, we see that he's trying to, to reconcile this acknowledgement that Jesus is more than just a, an ordinary person, even a, a, a learned religious person. There's something more to him. There's, there's wisdom that he has. There's the, the miracles that he performs. And so he's trying to, to put these pieces together and as a part of the conversation. We see that Jesus helps him and in generations yet to come helps us Uh, to understand truly who Jesus was. If we read in John, the third chapter, verses 13 through 16, uh, we see this. No one has ever gone to heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus was prompting, was moving Nicodemus, Nicodemus to that place where, where he would begin to understand the importance of this, of this new birth, of this spiritual birth, of this being born again you know, the, the text there, one and only son, um, in, in the Greek, the word for this is monogenes, which means one of a kind, unique, as uh, Nicodemus would eventually come to know, he would see Jesus as all that Jesus was, fully God and fully man, that which has never been before or been since. So he starts off with this, this cautious approach, but as they engage in this conversation, Nicodemus finds himself drawn deeper and deeper into, into this, um, this discussion that they're having. So he moves to the second stage, and that is the deepening curiosity. In the fifth chapter of John 3, it says this, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless you are born of water and the Spirit. Now Nicodemus understood the, the born of water part. Um, women, when they're about to give birth, the water breaks. He, he knew that part. But what's this, this born of the Spirit? That was a new idea to him. And though a learned man and a spiritual man and a, and a godly man, uh, this was just simply something that Nicodemus had not yet grasped. And so they uh, continue on in that uh, conversation, and Jesus begins to explain the significance and the importance, in fact, the essential element of, of having this spiritual rebirth. Now, if we think about birth, um, all of us um, have some experience there because Every one of us watching this has been born. You know, I heard once that, um, that, that pregnancy is a genetic trait. If, if your mom got pregnant, then your grandma probably got pregnant as well. There, there's just that reality that if we're, we're born, we're here. But one of the unique things about, about being born, as you and I have, is that we had no say-so in the process. We had nothing to contribute, zero, zip, nada, not a single thing. It was a decision that was made between a man and woman, hopefully, husband and wife, hopefully and in a proper context so that when you were born and I were born, there, were, there was celebration and rejoicing in that. That's physical birth. But spiritual birth is a, is a very different kind of thing because in spiritual birth, we have complete say in whether that happens or not. We are in absolute control of that. We are the authority of whether that's that's going to move forward or not. Now hopefully, um, there will be rejoicing if we make that decision with friends and family. In today's world, it's hard to know what the reaction will be. But there is a group uh, that gives great fanfare whenever someone makes that decision uh, to turn their life over to Jesus to, to experience that spiritual rebirth. And that is the angels in heaven. And we've talked about this before. but. In in Luke 15, Jesus says, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing, there's celebrating in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's great news for God and, and, and those connected with God. And so we see that as, as Jesus continues on in this, this conversation, he begins to unpack this even further as far as, as what is experienced there he notes that there's this, there's this uh, tangible difference between a physical and spiritual birth. and, and In fact, he's already talked about this previously in the first chapter of John. He said this, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent or human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. That phrase, not of uh, natural descent that here uh, in, in the Greek really speaks of a, of a particular thing. The, the, the word here, haima, means uh, blood. And so it's, he's saying children born of blood. Now that may be a little too graphic for some people, but it's very accurate. That's a part of the birthing process. There's blood that's in, involved. And so Jesus said on the one hand, there's, there's the physical birth, involved water, involves blood, and then there's this other kind of birth where individuals are born of God, of the Spirit, In John 3.6, he irradiates just one more time this idea with these words. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Jesus then uh, goes on to uh, kind of anticipate a question that that he knew Nicodemus must be wrestling with at this point, and that is, well, well, if there is this spiritual rebirth, how do we know if we've experienced it? In Nicodemus' mind, maybe he's asking himself the question, how do I know if I've experienced that yet? And so Jesus responds with these words in John 3, 7, and 8. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. He's saying that that when someone's born of the Spirit, there's not going to be a a heavenly spotlight that shines down from heaven. There's not going to be some supernatural sign that suddenly appears on your chest saying born again or or spiritual rebirth. But he he does say that there is going to be something that's noticeable. In the same way that we can tell the wind's blowing by seeing the branches wave back and forth or in um, severe circumstances like a hurricane, we see actual buildings torn down. In the same way that there's tangible examples of that. So too, there's tangible examples when we have been born again, when there's spiritual rebirth that occurs. Our thoughts are different. If we've been known to have sort of a colorful vocabulary, our, our speaking becomes different. Our actions are different in that we're not just thinking about ourselves constantly about, but instead about others and about God. There's something that changes. And if it doesn't change, well then there's, uh, I think, serious question as to whether that spiritual rebirth has taken place. In fact, this idea is, is repeated in a number of places in Scripture. I'll just give you one example in the book of James 2:17. it says this: "In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead." Uh, We can talk uh, uh, about being followers of Jesus, but if there isn't something different in our lives, if there isn't some demonstration that we're, we're living in closer conformity to the image of Jesus, then maybe we need to revisit that question of whether spiritual birth has actually occurred. Okay, so we have these, these first two steps that have taken place. There's the caution that Nicodemus demonstrates. There's this, this curiosity uh, that sort of piqued his interest that, that Jesus has spoken about here. And then he moves uh, to a place of conviction. Jesus uh, concludes this, this sort of a dialogue by giving a comparison between an Old Testament story and of the upcoming crucifixion, which hasn't happened, but Jesus knows is coming. In John 3.14, he has this to say, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. In Numbers, the 21st chapter, we read of an incident where the, the people of Israel are wandering out in, in, the, in the desert. God's uh, put them there for 40 years um, to, to hopefully learn a lesson, but they're not learning very quickly. And so they continue to gripe and complain day in and day out, even though God is meeting their ever ever every need. And finally, on, on one occasion, God just has enough. And so he, he brings forth all of these venomous snakes to begin to bite and, and ultimately kill a number of the Israelites. The, the people of Israel repent. You know, there's nothing like having a snake attached to it and get you to think about God and, and maybe repenting again. So the, the, the people uh, repent. And then uh, following that, uh, they cry out to God, and, and this is how that plays out in Numbers 21, verses 7 through 9. We read this. The people came to Moses and said, We've sinned and when we spoke against the Lord and against you. So pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Jesus here is is sort of giving an an analogous demonstration or explanation of of how in the same way that the Israelites would look to this pole, we are called to look up to Jesus, who ultimately again would come to be lifted up on the cross. Just as the Israelites looked to that which was lifted up, the serpent... And receive life. So, those who look to Jesus as he's lifted up uh, there on that cross will receive life. Not physical life in the way the Israelites would, but spiritual life. And just as the, the serpent was the only hope for the Israelites, Jesus is the only hope uh, for us. You see, the Israelites, as all of this has taken place, they could have chanted incantations, they could have, have, have gotten their people together and tried to come up with a, a, a potion or, or some kind of, of cure for what had happened, and it wouldn't have made any difference. The snakes would have kept biting and the people would have kept dying. There was only one solution, and that was to look to that which was lifted up for you and for me. The world espouses lots of different choices out there, a lot of different options, but there's still only one solution. And that's to look to the one who was lifted up, Jesus, who gave his life for you and for me and for all of humanity. In Acts four too, we're reminded that Jesus is that answer with these words, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. As we look at uh, the dialogue, the conversation here, we see that Nicodemus is is initially, he's a little cautious, and then he's curious, and then he experiences uh, this sense of conviction, which ultimately leads him to that, that last stage, which is conversion. Now, it's interesting, as, as we read the story, we, we don't read that, that, that Nicodemus necessarily said a prayer right there as he's having this conversation with Jesus. But we do read later on, um, and, and there's not a lot, again, references about Nicodemus. We do read in John 3, verses 16 through 18, uh, these words. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. The key is demonstrated here and by the, the 20th chapter, the 13th verse, which we talked about at the outset, is this whole idea of believing that Jesus was who he said he was. Again, we're, we're not told what exactly happened at with Nicodemus at that moment, but as we, we read about Nicodemus later, in the, near the end of, of Jesus' life as a, a part of the, the crucifixion story, uh, we read this interesting description. And In John 19, verses 39 and 40, it says this, that he, and he referring here to, uh, to Joseph of Arimathea, he was accompanied by who? Nicodemus the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. And this was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. You see, somebody doesn't do this for another unless they care about them. And I would suggest uh, Nicodemus didn't do this unless there was a, a relationship that he had with Jesus. There's just too much to risk. I remember what we talked about before. There's, there's the, the religious, the social, the political uh, parts of that. And obviously by taking steps like this, uh, we're probably going to get out. But Nicodemus was willing to take that risk, was willing to engage in this. Because I think he had come to know who Jesus was. He had come to appreciate that Jesus was uh, unique in the ways that we described previously, fully God- and fully man. When everyone else had deserted Jesus, even his own disciples, it's Nicodemus and Joseph who are the ones that show up and show the respect uh, that Jesus deserved as they were there to prepare his body. You see, to kind of rack things up here, I I would have to say I'm pretty sure that we're going to see Nicodemus again. We're going to see him in heaven I think Nicodemus is going to be in heaven. The the question is, are you going to be there? It all goes back to this idea of spiritual rebirth. Have you experienced that rebirth? Have you been born again? Have you trusted in Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? Have you accepted by faith what he did on the cross for you? If you have, then you are born again. If you have, then you have experienced that spiritual rebirth. Your sins are forgiven. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. You will reside forever in heaven. But if you're unsure, if you don't know, well, this is a good day to to make sure. This is a great day to get things right. And so as I did last week, I'm going to close with just an opportunity for you to say a prayer. Remember, the whole purpose of this gospel is you might believe. And so we're going to pray one more time. If God's nudging you to take that step, to make that commitment, to become a follower of Jesus, you've gone through those different stages we've already talked about, and you've come to the same conclusion. Jesus has to be who he says he was. Well, then he wants to be a part of your life. He wants to be in your heart. And so if you'll bow with me, uh, please recite this prayer in your own heart. Um, as we close this uh, time of our sermon together, Father, thank you for your love for me. Thank you that uh, your Son was willing to come and pay the price for my sins. And Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for the things that I've said, forgive me for the things that I've fought. Forgive me for the things that I've done, which are contrary to your will. And Lord, let me start afresh today as I invite you into my heart as my Lord and as my Savior. Father, fill me from top to bottom with the presence of your Holy Spirit. And may this be the beginning of an eternal adventure filled with joy and peace and contentment as I keep my eyes focused upon you. And I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Say, if this is a decision that you made, we'd love to hear about that. I'm not, because we're trying to be nosy. Um, We just want to try to come alongside you. You know, it's always helpful when you begin something new, if there's someone that can can help you with that. We would love to be there for you. So send a note to uh, to my email, uh, give a call to the church office. Just let us know somehow. Um, If you want to get together, that would be great. At the very least, we can get a Bible in your hands uh, so that you can begin this adventure in the best way possible with God's Word. And if you have made that decision, congratulations. Your eternity has been changed from this moment forward.